If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. So last time I was here, a couple weeks ago, I taught uh, the first part of Philippians chapter 2. To give you guys a little rundown of what we talked about, so we're going to be about halfway through chapter 2. We're going to try to finish um, the chapter this morning. Uh, we probably will. It's not that long. It's pretty short, just a few verses. And so um, who knows? You guys know me. I kind of have the tendency to run a little bit shorter. So I kind of I feel like some of you guys just like when I teach just because you get out of here sooner. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, right. But again, this morning, Philippians. So just to give you guys a little introduction again, just a reminder of what the book of Philippians is all about. Um, of course, it's a letter written to the church of Philippi. Um, it was written by Paul the Apostle. Paul was the one who planted this church in Philippi to begin with. Now, when Paul was writing this letter, of course, we know he was in prison at the time. And so he was in prison in Rome, and so he's writing this letter for a couple of reasons. One, he's writing this letter to this church to thank them because the church had been supporting Paul in his ministry, going around planting churches and preaching the gospel. And so they were giving him financial support. We're also going to see in chapter 2, they would send him this man. His name was Epaphroditus. He was this man that was from the church of Philippi who was supposed to come and, and tend to Paul's needs and to make sure he was okay. And so... Paul is just simply thanking them for their generosity and for their support over his life and his ministry. And he's also just trying to give them an update of what's happening um, and, and what his condition is while he's in prison in Rome to let them know, hey, everything's okay, right? The Lord is going to be using this. It's okay. And so um, chapter one, that's really what it's all about. Paul is, is, again, thanking them, and then he's encouraging them, saying, hey, listen, everything is going to work out. Everything is just fine. And and God is using this situation that Paul is in, right? What's so amazing about the book of Philippians, it's one of my favorite epistles of Paul because it's considered the epistle of joy. Now, it's interesting that this would be considered the epistle of joy. In fact, the word joy or rejoice is both used a total of 14 times. And it's a very small book, right? Only four chapters. And so the word either joy or rejoice a total of 14 times, we see it in just four chapters. And what's so interesting about that, of course, is that he's in prison. You would think that this would be a time where, where Paul is successful, where he's planning churches, and God is just blessing his ministry, and yet he's not. He's in prison. He's suffering. And, and of course, we know why he was in prison. It was because he was preaching the gospel, and he wasn't allowed to preach the gospel. It was against the, the law to be a Christian. And so they threw him in prison, and now he's awaiting his trial to see whether he was going to be released or to see whether he was going to be executed for his belief in Jesus. And so this is a very dark and, and difficult time for Paul, and yet Paul still talks about joy. And so this is what Paul says in chapter 1. He's encouraging them, saying, hey, this is actually working out for the furtherance of the gospel, right? Me being here, one, I'm able to, to preach to the palace guard, the person who would come in and, and would, would make sure everything's okay with Paul, and he's being fed, and he's still there. And he was preaching the gospel to this man, and then also it was, it was bringing boldness to the other believers because they were seeing Paul and they were seeing that even in this circumstance Paul finds himself in, he was still bold. He was still willing to preach the gospel. And so those who weren't in prison, man, they were encouraged. They're saying, man, if, if Paul could be this bold facing death, then I should be as bold as well to preach the gospel. And so it was encouraging other people. And so, so the situation that Paul was in, it was easy for him to say, 
man, this, is, this stinks. God's not using it. I want to get out of here and complain about everything. But instead, he said, no, God is going to use this. And that's exactly what was happening. And then, of course, um, in chapter 2, we see the third reason, really, why Paul was writing this letter. And that was for unity. We see that there might have been this, this unity issue that was happening in the church. Chapter 4 talks specifically about two women who were having issues of division. So whether it was just about those two women or, or maybe that was just an outcome of some division that was happening, we don't know. He doesn't really get into specifics. But we do know at the end of chapter 1, really it ties in better with, with chapter 2. He talks about standing fast and, and being in one mind for the gospel and being in unity with each other. And then looking at the beginning of chapter 2 in verse number 3, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only out for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. And so this was Paul's whole theme going into chapter 2 is, is, hey, us as the church, we need to be in unity with each other. We also need to be examples to those who are not a part of the church, those who don't know Jesus. Because for those who are in the world, that's how they live, right? They live for selfish ambition. They live for conceit. And if they see that the church is doing the exact same thing, then how are we being effective for the gospel? But rather, we should be a light and a witness to Christ by our unity and by not being, doing things out of selfish ambition, not doing things out of, of conceit, but, but of lowliness of mind and looking out for the interest of others. And then, of course, in verse number 5 of chapter 2, he talks about, again, this mind, this, this idea of unity. He says it comes from the mind of Jesus Christ. And he, he gives us Jesus as our example. That Jesus, when he walked and, and he died on the cross and he was resurrected, when he was here on earth, he showed us what it looked like to be a bondservant, meaning to, to willingly be a slave. That Jesus, the, the God of all creation, he was willing to, to let go of his deity to come down as a man, but not just a man, but a bondservant. Not just as a bondservant, but someone who's willing to lay down his life in the most humiliating way possible, which was crucifixion on the cross. And so that's the example that we have to follow after, man. If that's what Christ did for us, so we should have that same mind for others. And so this morning, we stopped last time in verse number 11. So this morning, we're going to pick up in verse number 12. So look with me, Philippians chapter 2, verse number 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining or disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Lord, we, we come before you this morning um, asking that your, your spirit would be upon us. Lord, asking that you would be present in this room, convicting our hearts, 
Lord, showing us where we've been going wrong, where we've been led astray by sin, by compromise in our lives. Lord, show us uh, the ways in our lives where we haven't surrendered them to you. Lord, we've been selfish. We've been complainers. We've been doing things our way and not yours. Lord, would your, your word do a mighty power in this room this morning? Lord, out of your power, out of, of your word, Lord, your word is, is life to us. It's living water. It's a thing that feeds us. It's a thing that refreshes us. God, we need it. Lord, be with us this morning in our study. Lord, if there's anything in this text that even I haven't seen, Lord, would you reveal that to us this morning? Lord, how we can apply it to our lives. So be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Looking at verse number 12 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. So what is Paul trying to say when he says to work out your own salvation? Well, there's a couple of things we need to look at. First, let's look at the word salvation. So, of course, what salvation means, it's, it's redemption. It literally means deliverance or a lifeline. And so we know, of course, that Jesus is that redemption. Jesus is that lifeline and that it's simple that when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, that's our deliverance. That is our redemption. That is where we find salvation. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse number 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And so that is what salvation is, right? So we can all agree here that that is what salvation is. It's not about works. It's not about our power, our will, or anything we can do, but it's simply that we have been saved by grace through faith. And that grace comes by the work that, that Jesus did on the cross and then, of course, resurrecting from the, the grave three days later. So that is our salvation. That is our redemption. So now that we know what, a re, um, what salvation is, let's look at the word work, right? So work is to do something, right? It's to accomplish or to achieve something. Now, this kind of sounds contradictory at first, right? We just talked about salvation being something we don't need to work towards, something that we don't need to earn. But this isn't what, what Paul is trying to get. It's not at the sense of earning salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation, but what he says, work out your salvation. In other words, he means demonstrate your salvation. Charles Spurgeon had a commentary on this. He says, some professors appear to have taken in the notion that the grace of God is a kind of opium with which men have drugged themselves into slumber. And their passion for strong doses of sleepy doctrine grows with that which it feeds on. God works in us, says they. Therefore, there is nothing for us to do. Well, that's bad reasoning. It's a false conclusion. God works, says the text. Therefore, we must work out as God works in. We're going to see here in verse number 13, skipping ahead a little bit. We'll, we'll go into it in more detail later. But in verse 13, it says, it is God who works in us. So very simply, what it means to work out your salvation is, is if God has begun a work in us, we now need to 
out our salvation. And so again, it's, it's not that, that we're working for salvation. It's not in the sense that our salvation is incomplete or incomplete, right? We know that Jesus has, has finished our salvation. It's secure. It's complete. He didn't do it halfway. But it's this idea that we are to put the truth um, uh, we are to put the truth of our belief into practice. And then, of course, I think it's interesting just to, to add on to this. So to work out your own salvation. So we talked about salvation, talked about what it means to work out. But now let's look at your own. I think oftentimes we have the tendency to work out other people's salvation. Isn't that right? We like to focus in on other people and, 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 and judge them and, and say, well, they need to work on this area of their lives or they need to do this in their lives. They're not, they're not doing that correctly, right? That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying work out each other's salvation. That's maybe what was going on in the church. That's maybe why there was some division. But Paul's saying, no, work out your own salvation. And then it says, to work out your own salvation, what does the rest of the verse say? It says, with fear and trembling. Now, when he says fear and trembling, we're not talking about this constant fear like, like we're doing something wrong, and so now we're afraid of, of God punishing us or us going to hell, that type of fear and trembling. But really, it's, it's fear of not working out what, what, working out our own salvation, working out what God has given us in our lives and, and to do what God has spoken to us, right? Listen, God wants to do a work in all of our lives, but if we're being lazy and just trying to get away with the very bare minimum, we're going to miss out on what God wants for us. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Listen, believers, we should not be living this Christian life half asleep, trying to get away with just the bare minimum in our Christian walks, but we should be desiring everything that God has for us inside of our lives. We shouldn't be like that student who sits in the back of the classroom trying to get away with the bare minimum, trying to avoid contact with the teacher in any way possible, right? We should be that, that, maybe that teacher's pet, that one that sits all the way up in front and is always on task and, and doing their work, not the one sitting way in the back. That's not how our, our Christian lives should look, right? I actually have a funny story about that. I was kind of that kid in high school, the one who would sit in the back, and, and I would try to take naps and pretend I was doing work, or maybe I'd pull up my phone, and, and, and you know, I just did enough to get by, right? I studied enough. I did enough homework, and so I was able to pass, and I was able to get by, but I didn't really care to, to grow or to learn or anything like that, right? I just wanted to get by. And I remember once inside of my, uh, my English class, my teacher knew I had the tendency to do that. And so she assigned me um, a seat all the way up in front. And so this one, this one class, we were sitting there, and she gave us a task for, for all of, of class to write an essay. And I don't remember what essay. I think we were supposed to do an argumentative essay. She gave us a topic. And that's all we were supposed to do. For the entire class, we were just supposed to write this essay. And it was something that we didn't even have to churn in or anything like that. We were just supposed to stay on topic and write this essay. I don't know. It was busy work or something, right? And so it's like, great. Well, I don't have to churn in anything, right? So I kind of just sat there. And I was, I was sitting. And so my teacher, her desk sat on the, the right side of me. And so I would sit there. And I kind of just held my pencil. I had my paper on my desk. I kind of just went like this with my, my pencil in my hand. And I, I just kind of hid my face from my teacher and, and made it look like I was holding my pen. Well, I fell asleep. And I woke up maybe like 10 minutes later, my teacher calls my name. And so I wake up, pretend like I was awake the whole time. She hands me a piece of paper. And she says, hey, go up to the office. 
And then I was like, well, great, now I'm in trouble. I'm going to get detention. I was sleeping the whole class, something like that, right? She didn't tell me what it was for. So I took the slip, and I went up to the offices, and I handed it to the lady at the desk. And she takes it. She puts it behind her desk. She pulls up a cupcake. She hands it to me. She's like, hey, good job working hard in class. <laughs> and so I got a free cupcake for sleeping all class. My teacher didn't see me. She just saw my pencil was in my hand and my paper was there. And so she just assumed that I was working super hard. And I wasn't even lifting up my head to, to think or anything. I was just grinding out this essay. But the reality was I was asleep the whole time. And I got away with it. I got a cupcake out of it. It was pretty sweet. So it was something our school was doing. If the, the teacher saw you working hard, they would give you this, this slip, which you can turn in for a cupcake. So I got away with it. But the reality was I, I, I didn't learn anything, right? I didn't write that essay. I wasn't on task. I was just trying to get away with the bare minimum. And so to get back into it, really, is this the way that we should be trying to live out our Christian lives? Should we be trying to get away with the bare minimum? Should we be just enough to be saved, just enough to make ourselves a believer, and, and just getting by so we can go to heaven? Or is there so much more that we want? Do we truly want everything that God has in our lives, or are we just trying to play on the line of sin? I think too many of us have this mentality, what can I get away with before it becomes sin? And too many of us spend that time trying to excuse sin in our lives, or, or we try to, to find areas of the Bible where we can say, okay, this is black and white sin, so I can't do that as a believer. But this, a little bit more of a gray area. The Bible doesn't really talk about it, so, so maybe I can get away with it, and it's not really sin because the Bible doesn't really talk about it. And I play this game with myself, trying to convince myself that this thing, whatever it is in my life, is not considered a sin. And, and I, I want to get away with the bare minimum, saying, what can I get away with without it being sin? I think rather we should have this mentality, can this thing that I'm about to do bring any glory to God? And if it can't bring glory to God, then maybe I should stay away from it. Of course, this is going to fall under, again, this idea of working out our own salvation. It's this idea of personal convictions, that there are some things in the Bible where, where you know, it's a personal conviction. If you feel like the Lord has, has convicted you of that certain thing, and, and it's more of a gray area, it's not really black and white sin, and, and God has convicted your heart, then, then you should stay away from it, you know. But, but seeking out the Lord, again, working out your own salvation according to what God has for you and what his will is inside of your lives and, and not just trying to play this, this game of sin, but truly ser searching out what the Lord has for you, working out your own salvation with these personal convictions. He then says in verse 13, really verse 13 goes hand in hand with verse number 12. And so, to read that again, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. What he's trying to say here when it says to will and to do, to will means to desire, to do is to work out. So, for it is God who works in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. So again, it is God who's working in us. As God works in us, we work out our own salvation. But on top of that, we are to desire the things of Christ. We're not just working these things out because that's what a good Christian does, right? Because as a believer, I'm supposed to, to read my Bible. I'm supposed to pray. I'm supposed to, to come to church. No, it's not about that, right? God wants us to desire those things. There's a reason why God has given us free will. If he didn't want to give us free will, he didn't have to. But then we would all just be a bunch of robots serving him because 
we didn't really have any other choice. We didn't have any other option to go anywhere else. And so if God's our only option, then that's not really free will. And so we have a will, our free will. Do we, do we serve God or do we do our own thing? And God wants us to serve him and, and, and to, to follow after his will, not because we feel obligated to or we have to, to be considered a good Christian, quote unquote, but because, man, that is our true desire. That's my hope for all of us in this room is that we're here even this morning, not because we feel obligated to, not because that's the good American thing to do, but because, man, I want everything that God has for me, that this is a place that we can come and gather together and open up the word of God and search the scriptures and to hear from the Lord and hear from the Holy Spirit in our lives and that we would desire that. We would desire going to church. We would desire to read our Bibles on a daily basis. We would desire to be a witness for him. We would desire for those who, who serve in the ministry here to, to do it out of a, a, a heart of, of service, not, again, out of a heart of obligation. And as we do that, as we live our lives as believers, having this desire, that's how our day-to-day our -day life should be walked out again. If you're in here this morning and, and maybe you don't know what that looks like, maybe you, you are a new believer or you don't know Jesus and so you're not really sure what a relationship with Jesus looks like, I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. I don't get up every single morning saying, well, I'm a Christian, so this temptation, I can't do it. And, and this thing, I can't do it. And, and this, I have to do. And that, I have to do. No, because the problem with that, if, if, I'm, if I have a certain struggle, a certain temptation in my life, and all day I go saying, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. What did I spend my entire day thinking of? That certain temptation, that certain sin. Rather than saying that, we say, man, I just want more of Jesus. I just want to serve him. I just want what he wants for me. And if we say, I want to do these things, I want to read my Bible, I want to come to church, I want to serve the Lord, then guess what's on our heart and on our mind all day long? Serving Jesus. Pastor Chris kind of shares this story about when he was saved when he was about 20 years old. And, and before he knew Jesus, he was a drug addict. But when he came to know Jesus, he said that, that man, he just started serving the Lord. He started reading his Bible. He started going to church. And, and he was just so focused on serving Jesus. As a, a week went by, a month, three months, six months, and he didn't even touch drugs. He didn't even think about drugs. Why? Because, man, he was just so fixated on Jesus. And that's what Jesus does for us inside of our lives is that we don't live this life saying, well, I'm a Christian, and so I can't do those things. Listen, we have liberty in Christ Jesus. We can do all things, right? And if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus and you want to know him, but you're saying, man, there's something in my life that I don't want to give up, that I know if I become a believer, I'm going to have to give this thing up, and I don't want to give it up. Listen, let me tell you, you don't have to give that thing up. You come and you know Jesus, and as you begin to know Jesus, you begin to grow in Jesus. You begin to serve Jesus. Those things will begin to root out of your life. Those desires will begin to, to pass away in your life. No doubt we're still sinners. We still have flesh, and so we'll deal with temptations. We're going to deal with struggles. But something happens in our lives. We realize, man, whatever that thing is in my life, it doesn't satisfy. I might feel like it is now, but it might bring enjoyment in the meantime. But then it runs out, right? We're left empty. We're left dry. That's what the things of the world does. And so my encouragement to you, man, if you want to know Jesus, you can do that this morning as you are. You don't need to fix yourself. 
You don't need to remove anything from your life. You just come to know Jesus. And as you begin to grow in your walk, he's going to begin to work those things out of your life naturally. Those desires will go away when you serve Jesus. One more thing before we move on. Um, I think it's interesting, too, is that God puts this desire in us to work out his good pleasure. And I think that's something that is encouraging for me is like, like man, it pleases God for me to, to do these things, to work out his will. It, it pleases God to use me because I'm nothing. I have nothing to offer, especially the God of all creation. I, I'm nothing. If, if God wanted to get something done, he could just come send an angel to do it if he really wanted it to be done right. And yet he doesn't do that, right? It's for his good pleasure. That is the, the purpose and the reason for it. And also to know is that this doesn't come out of our own strength, um, but it comes from the strength of the Lord, right? If we're trying to, to work for the Lord out of our own strength, then again, we fall into that idea of, of doing it not because it's out of our desire, out of our heart, but doing it because it feels more like an obligation and it becomes more like a routine. But to truly desire and to do these things, it comes from the strength of the Lord. And the way that you, you build that strength, the way you build that desire is simply spending time with Jesus. The more you spend time with Jesus, the more your life is consumed around the word of God and around time with Jesus, that desire will grow in you. But if you're not spending time in Jesus, you're not spending time in the word, well, the world is going to eventually dim that desire inside of your hearts. And so to encourage you, man, read your word every single day that we're, we're spending time in our word daily. And, and that's our priority, that man reading the word and, and spending time with Jesus in our day-to-day -day lives, that should be like the same priority we put with eating or breathing air. Like it is the number one thing that we should put in our lives. And I promise you, if you're in here this morning and that's not part of your routine and you, you put that in your routine, you're going to see a change in your life. You're going to see um, a, a, a change in your heart and in your attitude and your day-to-day -day walk, man, if, if you spend time with Jesus before you even start every single day. Um, and it's a race. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's our lives, right? Paul says it's this race that we're racing until we come to know Jesus. And um, part of that is, is this training idea, right? Paul is using this idea of, of someone who is an actual runner to run a marathon. If I'm going to run a marathon, but I'm only training on Sundays for an hour and maybe Wednesday nights for an hour, um, I don't know if I'm going to be ready for that marathon, but if I'm truly committed to running this race to my best of my abilities, every single day is going to be committed to getting ready for this marathon. I'm going to be eating right. I'm going to be out there training and running and, and preparing my body. So the same for us in our relationship with God. It's a marathon. So every day should be consumed with the word of God, being committed to him and growing in him. He then says in verse number 14, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, excuse me, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ and I have not run in vain or have labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. First thing he says in verse 14, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. I think that's something that every single one of us inside of this room definitely needs to work on, myself included. 
not to complain or dispute about anything. Not some things, but anything. We complain about everything. Every single day, every single one of us finds a way to complain about something. We're just like the children of Israel. When we look at the children of Israel, when they're in the wilderness, they were in the wilderness for 40 years from Egypt into the promised land. Do you guys know how long of a journey that should have been? 11 days. 11 days turned into 40 years for the children of Israel. That's not because Moses didn't know his directions and they didn't know where they were going. It's because they were complaining that every, every area, every corner that they, they could find a, a way, a reason to complain, they found a reason to do it. They complained against Moses. They complained against each other. They complained against, about food. They complained against God. And because of their complaining and their hard-headedness, an 11-day journey turned into 40 years. And man, we can laugh. We can maybe even make fun of them a little bit. But we do the same exact thing. We complain about everything. We complain as soon as we wake up. 